Hey, everyone. Before we get rolling today, I want to say thank you to all of you who have reviewed and uh, read Durance Innovation on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever it is that you get your podcasts. I uh, just want to give a couple of shout outs uh, and read a couple of these just uh, as a way of saying thank you and uh, as a way of encouraging the, you know, you listeners who haven't yet done this to give you a little bit of a nudge to uh, go and click that five star button and uh, maybe write some words as well. So uh, Matt writes, I'm an engineer, so I like to get nerdy with data and technology, but this podcast gives a great balance of getting into the weeds, but also giving the information at a level everyone can understand. Um, thank you very much for that, for those kind words, Matt. Uh, that's sort of what we strive for. Uh, it's a little bit tough to uh, make sure that everyone or, you know, everyone in our target audience gets something out of this, but that's, uh, that's certainly what we, what we try to get to. We'll uh, continue to read these out as they come in. Uh, keep them coming. Here's the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, joining me today is Bruce Rogers, who is a uh, double board certified physician in internal medicine and endocrinology and uh, an instructor at the University of Florida Med School in Gainesville. And uh, Bruce is here to talk about something that is a kind of an emerging field in the application of heart rate variability to endurance training, which caught my attention through a mutual friend of ours, and uh, Marco Altini of HRV for Training, uh, who who shared a paper that Bruce was part of that uh, piqued my interest and uh, got in touch with Bruce and Bruce sent me a lot of information that was a little bit over my head. And uh, through our, through our back and forth over the email, we decided we were going to do a podcast episode just because this is such a fascinating um, emerging topic. But Bruce, before we get there, can you tell us a little bit about how it is that you got into exercise physiology and HRV? Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm kind of a, a kind of um, enthusiastic uh, user of strength training and endurance training myself. And over the past 20, 25 years, uh, I'm, I'm in my mid-60s now. But when I started exercise when I was about 40, um, I, I would stay abreast of the medical literature, the sports medicine literature to kind of, you know, optimize what I was doing and kind of over the years, just, you know, looking out for myself and how to get, get the best bang for the buck, uh, you know, um, and, and, and kept up with it that way. But about four or five years ago, I had a rotator cuff injury to my shoulder. Okay. And I decided to back off on my weight, uh, the amount of weights I was lifting couldn't do those big heavy chest presses anymore. Um, <laughs> and and, and uh, I had recalled seeing the low-load uh, strength training literature, um, something called um, katsu, uh, which is big in hmm. Japan, where they actually put on tourniquets uh, to decrease blood oh, flow, okay. create hypoxia, yeah. and using very low loads. And I, I got the idea, well, why don't I try getting a muscle oxygen sensor and kind of optimize my hypoxemia for the load. And huh. so I, I got one. And I looked at the forums and, and the websites of the manufacturers. And it was a bunch of misinformation and an industry hype. Right. And, and really not, nothing out there of, of, of use and, and nothing of practical use. So I, start, I said, well, I, you know, let, let me take a look at this. And I started a blog basically to kind of help people out there who were going through the same thing as I did. And if you look back at my blog, you know, the first five or ten posts are purely on strength training and the various permutations of kind of optimizing strength training, low load, and muscle O2. Uh, I got into endurance training because a lot of the uh, hype around the muscle oxygen sensors was on predicting the second lactate threshold, the you know, the anaerobic threshold, right. maximal lactate steady state, and and I kind of went on from there and got interested in in uh, VO two max calculations and the kind of errors that Garmin um, uh, introduces in their calculation and and <laughs> and along the way, heart rate variability came up in my research on how Garmin was 
um, uh, 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 calculating a, a VO2 max. Okay. And then when I started reading about heart rate variability during exercise, which is very, very different than heart rate variability at rest, um, I came across some very interesting literature using heart rate variability indexes to determine the aerobic threshold, which is kind of a, synonymous with the first lactate threshold, the first ventilatory threshold. And right. I started looking at that data and, and I had Kubios and I said, wow, you know, I've done a bunch of ramps. Let me plug my data into a ramp and see if any of these indexes pan out. And I plugged it everything in. And the only index, at least for me, that worked was the DFA alpha one index. Okay. Everything else did not work at all. So I, I, I looked more into that and I, I came across Thomas Grunwald's excellent work, kind of pioneering work on this. I contacted him and we got into a discussion about using this for aerobic threshold determination. And uh, one thing led to another and we decided to write a perspective review together. And, and that's what uh, got into Frontiers. That's, uh, that's a, a great summary. And uh, I think we threw, well, we, you threw a lot, of, uh, a lot of terms out there that I think merit definition before we get too much deeper into this, just so that uh, our listeners you know, uh, know what it is that we're, we're, we're specifically talking about. And of course, uh, listeners, you guys are, are big exercise, physiology, aerodynamics, heat transfer nerds. That's why you're listening to the show and, uh, we love you for that. But just to make sure that, uh, that everyone's on the same page, uh, Bruce, I want to spend a little bit of time to define some of these terms. So I'll, uh, I'll throw them at you and then you give us, you give us the, uh, the definition of what we're talking about. So, uh, we are talking about heart rate variability, and uh, it is it is very important to understand what it is and uh, and what its what its implications are. So why don't we start there? Uh, and we've had Marco Altini on the show, uh, listeners. So if you if you want a little bit of a deeper dive, uh, I'll put a link to in the show notes to that conversation. So we're not going to spend too much time talking about HRV in and of itself, but we need a bit of a definition. So Bruce, why don't we start there? What is heart rate variability? Yeah, the, the most basic definition is, basic, is is what it's saying. It's the variability of heart rate, uh, heart beat-to-beat -beat variation. So the, there's a term, uh, heart rate or heartbeat is not a metronome. It is not exactly the same from one impulse to the next. There is a subtle variation in timing uh, between one beat to the next, and depending on uh, the mathematical descriptive terms of those differences in timing, you can make a, a determination of a balance of different parts of um, the, the autonomic nervous system. Uh, there's the sympathetic, the adrenaline system, the parasympathetic system, which is kind of the opposite. Um, and, and as um, stress increases and as exercise intensity increases, the sympathetic side uh, decreases, uh, excuse me, increases and, and the parasympathetic is withdrawn. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that at the first ventilatory threshold or the first lactate threshold or the aerobic threshold, all the same terms, the, the uh, parasympathetic system is pretty much all withdrawn. So many of the indexes used during exercise to determine intensity um, rely on a nadir value. So if we look at a, an index, and I'm just going to throw out a name, something called SDNN, which is the standard deviation of end-to-end -end beats, end-to-end -end meaning R wave to R wave. It's really the standard deviation of each um, uh, R to R peak. And, and uh, that, that decreases with intensity, um, but you, you, you basically uh, uh, asymptotically approach a, a, a stable value mm -hmm. at the aerobic threshold. And that's great. Um, and that works if you use a, a ramp to exhaustion, because when you're looking for a pattern in a curve where it's progressively decreasing, you actually need to see the entire curve hmm. because if you just look at a small part of that curve, you don't know if the next higher intensity stage of exercise is going, going to go down another notch. Right. 
now the the uh, uh, the trended fluctuation analysis DFA alpha one is a index of fractal patterns um, okay getting back oh, sorry, to Bruce, I'm gonna, I'm gonna inter- uh, interrupt just for a second before we get to what yeah. DFA alpha one is um, just a, a couple of quick points on what you said just a little bit of an explainer for for folks uh, when you said uh, the, when you're when you're looking at the decrease between the R to R uh, peaks in the you know in the in the heart rhythm, you're talking about the decrease in the variability between them as exercise intensity goes up. Obviously, as heart rate goes up, they these beats will actually get closer together because heart rate, as an average, will increase as intensity increases, which is something that's trivial to say. It's obvious, but it's the variability that um, the variability between the timing of the peaks that decreases. I just wanted to, you know, uh, make that clear for our listeners. Yes, with, with, there are some mathematical complexities in there because not every index looks at variability. They look at, you know, the high frequency power, um, is, 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 is not necessarily a variability, um, but again, the patterns change with intensity. Okay, that's a, that's a that's a good way of of putting it. So there are changes that we can by by looking at it by using software to analyze uh, the uh, the uh, the rhythm, the heart rhythm. There are patterns that we can discern that change as exercise intensity changes. Exactly. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Yep. So then uh, let's go to DFA Alpha One, which is another one of these indices that we can look at, or some of the software can look at. Right. And, and this one is, is called a nonlinear index um, as opposed to those conventional indexes that um, like Marco Altini's um, uh, resting uh, software is, is, is looking for at rest. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and again, the, the, those indexes lose their dynamic range kind of past mid-intensity, okay. um, even past mild intensity. So they don't have that huge dynamic range, whereas the, uh, the, the DFA Alpha 1 does have a much higher dynamic range. So let's get back to fractals because it's basically an index of, a, of a fractal behavior. Okay. A fractal is a self-similar pattern uh, that's independent of scale. And let me give you uh, uh, um, an example is, is, is really in, in order. Okay, please. Like bro- uh, broccoli or tree branches or a coastline or snowflakes, something that if you looked at it like a broccoli, um, you look at the whole thing, you see all these branched patterns. But if you take a small branch of that broccoli and snap it off, it ha- kind of has the same pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the sm- larger scale or the smaller scale, it has a, a pattern of complexity. Oh, okay. A coastline is the same thing. If you look at a coastline from far, far away uh, versus close, it has that kind of jagged, irregular pattern, but it, there's still a pattern there that's independent of scale. Hmm. So we have, again, a fractal is a self-similar pattern. Then we have kind of another concept called correlation. And if you look at the... the um, uh, uh, title of our of our article it's fractal correlation property so correlation comes in here as well and and to give you an example of correlation um, the classic example of that is something called a random walk okay so let me spend like you know two minutes on please this. explain it yeah because if you if you've done computing you you know what these things are but if you haven't then it's it's something that that bears explaining absolutely right so you you have you have an individual. And they could go. They could go either left or right. They have a choice of left or right. So that's that's. And let's say at each choice, they they randomly went left or right. Okay. We would call that a correlation factor. The alpha one would be 0.5, which is totally random. Okay. All right. So when you look at the DF DFA alpha one, and it's 0.5, kind of think of it as a, a random pattern. Of either going left or right, no rhyme or reason. Sure, with equal Flipping probability. Flipping Yeah, okay, fair. Exactly. All right. So then there's a correlated pattern. Correlated pattern is you go left or right, but it depends on what you – the pattern you did before. Mm-hmm. So okay. it, there was a few beats where um, the, the left or right coin tosses developed into a pattern. Okay. And that pattern became a self-similar repeating pattern. 
And those are the correlated values, all right? Those are kind of the 0.5 to 1.5 okay. of the alpha one. All right, then we get into the last category, which in some respects is, I think, is the most interesting and maybe even the most confusing to some extent, and that's the anti-correlated pattern. And those are alpha one values below 0.5. Okay. And this is the really fascinating part of it. Um, all right. So again, we, we have our guy who's going to go left or right. All right. And, and he's not, he's, and now it, it's the left or right choice based on your previous choices to correct back to center line. So it's almost like an oh, artificial intelligence okay. to get back to that center. Yeah. All right. So if you deviated off your pattern, your anti-correlate, your, your, your pattern becomes uh, one that you get back to that center line and decreasing the deviation. So that's fascinating because I was going to ask, how do you, how do you get any more random than random? How do you go below 0.5? But okay, now that makes sense. If you, no, if you, if you correlated initially, you correlated and now you're anti-correlating to get back into inter-center line. Okay. I'm with you now. Okay. And that's it. That is it in a nutshell. So it, it when you drop below 0.5, again, you can't get any more random, but you become anti-correlated, uncorrelated. And, and the thing about that is that's actually very hard logistically to measure. Um, and we'll get into this in a little bit, but artifact correction, misbeats, um, device sample rates, all of these will, will make it difficult to accurately measure the anti-correlated range. Interesting. Okay. So what does measuring this do for us in the context of, um, of establishing or of measuring exercise intensity? And actually, maybe even before you answer that question, um, why don't we pull back a little bit and uh, put HRV aside for a minute and look at um, exercise intensity and uh, this, uh, this term that you've been using, um, lower threshold or aerobic threshold or first ventilary threshold. Uh, this bears a little bit of definition. Um, so let's spend a little bit of time talking about what it is and why it's important. Yeah. Um, let's step back even further and, 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 and talk about why should we even monitor our training distribution? Yes. All right. Lo- I love it. Training intensity distribution. So um, your, your um, listeners have, have probably heard uh, other people talk about polarized training, threshold training, pyramidal training. Uh, all of these terms uh, relate to models of defining what your intensity is. So, you know, you go out for a run or you go out for a bike ride and you say, well, you know, I'm going to kind of wing it. Well, you know, how, how, how hard did you actually uh, cycle or run in there? Uh, there are actual fixed points that we can determine. Now, why is this important? It's important for kind of two standards. Uh, one is you can't do a study unless you accurately defined your training zones. So if I want to compare polarized, which is doing some very easy training most of the time versus uh, some high intensity for a, a minority, so that's polarized, or like threshold where you do, you do a lot of easy, but you do kind of a lot of middle to high. Uh, that's kind of threshold. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to compare um, you know, 10 guys doing one and 10 guys doing to the other, I better have a really accurate way of defining those zones, or I can't do that comparison. Fair point. So that, that's one important reason why we need to know the zones. Then the other one is for our own selves, you know, if, if we want to recover properly, we want to make sure that we're in a low enough zone that we recover properly, we don't get overtrained, and we have the, the energy fatigue stamina to actually do a high intensity workout. The, the next day. Mm-hmm. So there's very important, you know, fundamentals of, of the knowing the zones. Now, what are the two zones? Well, I'm going to focus more on the first zone, the aerobic threshold zone, where the, uh, that, that is where you start to build up lactic acid, all right? Start to build it up. The, the second um, lactic acid threshold or the maximal lactate steady state, or the respiratory compensation point. Those are all synonymous terms for a much higher intensity zone where the lactate accumulation becomes unstable, where you keep building it up, um, and you can't continue um, uh, at that intensity for long. Uh, So that's that's the second threshold. Uh, The first threshold 
we have two ways of kind of getting there, defining it. One is to check lactic acid values. Okay. Um, there are, um, and that sounds easy. Uh, yeah, there are meters out, there are strips out there, but there are problems. One, it, 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 it depends how you define the first threshold. Uh, historically, some people would define it as an increment of of a rise in lactic acid, like one millimole or half a millimole. Uh, some of those are historical concepts based on how good the strips were at the time. Mm -hmm. So if your strip wasn't that good in the old days, you'd actually use like one millimole because that's that was the best you can do as far as definition and, and precision. Um, later on, they started looking at logarithmic curves and, and where the logarithmic rise of lactic acid started. And then some people use a fixed value of two. Um, and some of the really good uh, polarized training studies from Stoggle uh, and Spurlick used two. Okay. And, and, and that's fine if that's your definition. Okay. Um, uh, and again, I'm, I'm not saying one's better than the other, but again, it, that, this is a problem with lactic acid. It's where you define it. Then we have the problem with calibrating strips and meters. Um, doing this in the field is really hard. I mean, I'm in Florida. You know, you pull out a lactate strip, it's it's destroyed in like five seconds in the humidity. Mm, okay. So you can't do it in the field. You'd have to do it in, you know, in, in the air conditioning. Then there's blood sampling involved. Then it also depends on the, the slope of the ramp and, and the length. If you're doing constant uh, power stages, the length of the stage, three minutes, five minutes, eight sure. minutes. Yep. So there are all these different particulars. Now, um, there's something else we could do, and that's gas exchange. Yep. Um, hope, I hope I'm not giving you too much detail. No, here. this is th so we've uh, we've we've covered testing a little bit on the show. We haven't done too much uh, too much of a deep dive into it, but you're you know Bruce, you're doing it right now. But listeners, just a, a, a quick a quick synopsis. So what Bruce is talking about here is a is a three uh, intensity three zone intensity model where really there are two there are the two breakpoints. They you know whatever they have lots of names to them as he says, but the LT one and LT two, uh, and it's it's, the, it's defining that lower threshold that we're talking about uh, right now. And there are, as he says, a few different ways to do it. And um, I think the, the point you're driving at, uh, Bruce, is that none of them are very good. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about gas exchange. I think that one's a little bit, tends to be a little bit more reliable than the lactate, uh, provided the equipment is properly calibrated. Well, yeah, that yes and no. I mean, gas exchange is, is very sexy to do. You go to a lab and <laughs> they right. hook you up and put Char a mask charge on. Charge you a bunch of money. But, but exactly. But and and this is this is the other thing. It, there is a lot, many, many problems with gas exchange. First of all, um, besides all the problems with calibration and and you know going there and, and getting the right center, the the um, the software most people use software to interpret the results. Okay, sure. So they're using automated methods and there are some good studies out there showing these automated methods are, are generally inaccurate. Hmm. Uh, sometimes they hit it right on the money, but you, you can't be assured of that. And, and uh, th th there's very poor reliability of the automated software to determine the first ventilatory threshold, the, the aerobic threshold. So it, it basically comes down to hand interpretation. And there are different methods of hand interpretation. And again, the accuracy depends on the examiner who's examining the curves. And some tests are not even interpretable, hmm. um, even using multiple different methods. Um, you know, I've done a fair amount of, of uh, curve interpretation and some uh, it, it doesn't look like a textbook and you just you can't get a number. Right. Um, so, again, the gas exchange, despite how um, complex it sounds and how good it sounds and how gold standard it sounds really isn't. Okay. So here's where we are, listeners. We, uh, we've established the fact that knowing the, the lower, the aerobic threshold, LT1, VT1, similar, similar terms is important because training below this threshold, is, according to at least the polarized model or even the pyramidal model, spending the majority of your time below that threshold is very important to, uh, you know, a sustainable and effective uh, endurance training. I think this is there. I, I don't think you're going to get much disagreement on this point. So knowing that, that knowing that set point is incredibly important, whether it's whether you measure it in, you know, 
pace or power or heart rate, depending on your sport, um, it's a vitally important uh, point to to understand where you are uh, along that continuum. And then, as as Bruce pointed out, and I, I happen to agree with you entirely, Bruce, it's very difficult to uh, to measure what this point is. And this is using lactate or gas exchange. And as far as field methods, you know, the only thing that I'm really aware of is the talk test, you know, the, uh, the classic, you know, um, back to, I don't know how far, how far back in history we've been using this, this, uh, test for whether or not you're above this this uh, aerobic threshold and that is whether or not you could string together a sentence of x number of words i think it was around 30 words without really having to, to pause too much for breath so it's a it's a difficult point to uh, to identify and uh, this is why the work that uh, the you guys are doing is so exciting well thank you so um, let's uh, so then let's jump back into our conversation about uh, this novel HRV analysis and how it can be used with the right tools to pinpoint this uh, this aerobic threshold. So um, if you look at studies going back again ten maybe even fifteen years, the the alpha one decreases with exercise intensity. So that that's known. That's not novel. That's old stuff. Multiple studies, gen, most of them in cycling, um, uh, have, have shown that. Um, and almost all of them in men. Okay. Yeah. Um, again, very few, very little female data. So we decided to take a look at it in uh, recreational male runners um, using very, very clean data. When I mean by clean data, very high quality data, this was ECG, electrocardiogram data, uh, with a very high sample rate. So very accurate waveform, very sharp R peaks. Um, and, and we, we basically looked at gas exchange and we looked at, uh, and I hand interpreted the gas exchange very, very carefully. Um, with uh, one of my partners looking over my shoulder. So we both agreed on it. And we, we then um, decided to use a, an alpha one value of 0.75. And we, we chose this value based on it being kind of midway between the random noise, the 0.5, and a well-correlated signal of one. But if you actually look back at some of the other studies done with alpha one, where they did, they they uh, would correlate alpha one with let's say fifty percent of VO two max power, seventy percent, ninety percent VO two max power. If you kind of track back, the 0.75 alpha one in, in many of these studies kind of fell between sixty and seventy percent okay. of VO two max power, which is you know for a lot of people where the aerobic threshold is. So. You know, we were suspicious from that point, so we decided to just you know go for it and look at look at it in, in that uh, patient in that subject population, and we found really good correlation between the 0.75 and and the aerobic threshold as far as heart rate and and uh, VO2 uh, levels as far as uh, you know on on the RAM tests. Um, okay. Yep, I'm with you. So, um, from a practical standpoint. Where can we use this uh, in, in, you know, your listeners, uh, you know, uh, kind of use case scenarios here? Right. Well, I, I'm going to kind of go through three methods. Um, and again, this is best categorized in cycling or running. We don't know if this is going to work with skiing or rowing or kayaking or climbing, but let's say cycling and running. Well, you're in luck and, and because the, the listeners to this show are all cyclists and runners and with, with a smattering oh, of triathletes and uh, they, they kind of spend a lot of time cycling and running too. Perfect. Uh, meth method one is to just do a progressive ramp and, and you can do this. Um, with Zwift, I mean, you, it, it takes about 30 seconds to program in mm -hmm. a ramp. And, you know, what I do for myself is I ramp from 130 to 230 watts, uh, a five watt per minute, nice and slow. Now, remember, we don't need to go to super high power here. Right. We don't even need to go to our uh, maximal lactate steady state. We just right. need to get maybe one stage or two past our aerobic threshold. So we don't have to go so high. We're in, we're, we're ruining our training. We're not getting exhausted by doing this. Mm -hmm. So method one is to do a ramp and record the, the heart rate variability data, the RR intervals and load it into Kubios 
and interpret it. Right. Let me let me interrupt you before you go into method two. So you've uh, you've mentioned uh, what I imagine is a software package called Kubios. Um, tell our right. listeners what it is before we uh, before we proceed because it's it's useful to know. Yeah, Kubios is probably the most popular, widely used commercial heart rate variability software package. Um, uh, it's been out for many years. Okay. Uh, uh, really well done. Um, uh, industry standard, gold standard for sure. Um, there are two versions. There's a free and there's a premium. Uh, and and what the premium will do, the premium has – and I think the premium may be, I don't know, three dollars $400 to buy and then there's a yearly fee. Um, the premium has better – artifact correction modality um, than, than the free. Mm-hmm. It's, and if you're getting a lot of artifacts and, you, and money's no object, I would, I would certainly get, uh, consider the premium. The free is, is fine if you're not getting much in the way of artifact. Okay. Um, and the free does not give you what's called time-varying analysis, which time-varying analysis is what we kind of pioneered in our validation study. Um, and and th- what, what we do here, it, kind of stepping back for a second, we look at the heart rate variability over a two-minute window, all right? So we're looking at alpha one over two minutes. Okay. And, and the thing that we really did that nobody else did before was the old way of doing this would be to do a three-minute ramp and then at the end of that three-minute, do a two-minute sample. Okay. So you're only getting like, you know, let's say you did – six stages. You'd only have six samples. Okay, yeah, sure. And you'd have to try to come up with a curve from six samples. You can't make much of that. Uh, okay. So what we did was we do the two-minute window, but we recalculated every five seconds. So it's kind of like a rolling average or a moving average. Exactly. Okay, exactly. Okay. And the rolling average gives you this fine granularity right. that was that you could see patterns that you never really could see before when you were doing those two-minute consecutive or you know every three minutes you would throw in a two-minute measurement you couldn't see patterns that way but when we did the granularity with the rolling the rolling window uh, method you can see really nice patterns and you can do that in kubios premium you cannot do that in kubios regular understood so it's a it's an analysis it's an analysis software uh for heart rate variability that allows you to capture the alpha one and capture it the way that your study uh used it to to you know determine your findings but we will listeners we will talk about alternatives uh, a little bit later i just wanted uh the term kubios defined so that we're all on the same page because until i'd read this paper uh by bruce and everyone uh i had no idea what it was either Okay, so method two, we're, 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 we're method two of calculating an aerobic threshold. We could do constant power intervals okay. of between five and eight minutes in length, but we still would have to load that data into Kubios. And I, I did, I did a case report way back, um, um, and we reference it in, in, in our article. Um, and and I, I used, uh, I did not do a ramp. I would do constant power intervals because I was measuring lactate mm-hmm. and I was looking at muscle O2 and, and ventilation and such. Um, and, and, and it's very valid to do, in my opinion, to do constant power intervals as long as they're long enough. Yeah. They got to be, again, five or eight minutes. You'd still have to load it into Kubios. The, the last method, and, and this is the newest method, and this is only a few weeks old, <laughs> and, and, and that's to use heart rate variability logger from, from Marco Altini, which I think is a phenomenal piece of software um, that wasn't even written for, with this in mind, but it, it gives you a, a real-time look at Alpha One as you're doing it. Cool. All right? okay. So using his, his software – um, what I would do is basically do a 10, 20-minute warm, warm-up um, and then do between uh, uh, constant power intervals of six to eight minutes. Why am I doing six to eight minutes? Well, his <laughs> software uses um, – it doesn't recalculate every five seconds or every 10 seconds like Kubios does. Okay. It's going to give you a value every two minutes. Um, on 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 the money every two minutes it's going to spit out the alpha one so one we we want to start it on an even increment we don't want to start it at 11 minutes because our first two minute will be overlapping a rest understood 
So we want to start time zero at an even amount. And then we want our intervals to be even amounts of two minutes. Understood. Uh, you, and and uh, to, to add to that, you need at least four minutes to get some sort of stability, all right, some, some steady state. So I, that's why I'm recommending six to eight, that the, the, the interval between four to six and then six to eight, we'll get two values. And when those – one of those two values crosses the 0.75, that's, that's your, your, what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. I would then go one – um, uh, interval higher, another 20 or 30 watts higher, let's say, just to make sure that you then go down even lower. You get down to 0.5 or 0.6, and then you know you've crossed the threshold, and and you'll have your answer right there. Right. So, listeners, the key takeaway, um, and regardless of which method you're using, is you're looking for that for the the DFA Alpha One value to cross 0.75. That's, that is what, uh, what Bruce is sh- and, and his colleagues have shown to correlate to the intensity at which you're at that aerobic threshold. Is that right? That is correct. What, what, what I do want to say though, make sure you go one step past it because when you're at the 0.75 limit, there can be a little bit of fluctuation up and down, up and down. It's, you know, the body is kind of, uh, of, you know, a, a beautiful organ and, and uh, organism, and you know it. Do, it doesn't obey mathematics totally, so there may be some random fluctuation up and down. So always make sure you you go one stage above right. just to confirm it. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about. Uh, so now that we know how to test for uh, for our aerobic threshold using this um, novel technique, um, do we? Is this something that you would recommend using as a as a test, as you would might as you might do? You know. Uh, an anaerobic threshold test, an FTP test, or is this something that you could do, you know, live with the logger's ability to display alpha one live um, in the course of, let's say, an aerobic ride uh, indoors, uh, where you want to make sure that, you know, let's say, as you fatigue over the course of, uh, of let's say, a, quite a long aerobic ride, that you don't end up um, exceeding your aerobic threshold towards the end of this effort if your stated purpose is to stay below it? Uh, yes. Well, actually, both those scenarios and kind of a third one that I'll talk about. Okay. Uh, one, sure, assess the aerobic threshold. Again, first ventilatory, first lactate threshold for training intensity distribution, prescriptions, and uh, you know, cardiac rehab, weekend warriors, for the pros, for enthusiast athletes, you know, know where your, zone, where your first zone one to zone two marker is. Um, yeah, also useful for retrospective analysis of, of a training zone. For instance, yeah, you go out and you ride for an hour or you run uh, for an hour and you, you come back and you load in your, your stuff into, let's say, Kubios and you say, well, yeah, I, my, my alpha one was one, you know, round one. Yeah, I was zone one the whole way. Right. Um, real-time enforcement, I think, is, is – we didn't have this again until just a few weeks ago. But you know, you could if you have an iPhone, you could just put your iPhone on your site, you know, on, on your uh, you know uh, amount on your handlebars, mm-hmm. or even in, you know uh, in your pocket when you're running, and and run uh, Marco's app and and keep an eye on your Alpha One. I mean, um, you know, just like if you were using uh, you know a Garmin power display uh, on a bike, you'd have your iPhone next to it and keep an eye on your Alpha One and and just make sure that you're 0.75 or better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, I think that's better than after the fact because after the fact, you've already dipped into that, you know, no man's land sure. where you really shouldn't be. Um, so again, knowing where you are as you're doing it is, is, is phenomenal. Yeah, and that's, that's, where, that's where I'm excited about it because, you know, uh, a lot of the folks that I work with as a, in my capacity as a coach – you know, they're, they're long distance, um, long course, uh, triathletes, right? So we do a lot of long, uh, long training sessions where, um, you know, in the vast majority of these sessions, the point is to remain below that aerobic threshold. And as been, it's been documented by, by Siler and by, you know, others that as duration increases, the, the, the absolute, you know, let's say external uh, power, the mechanical power at which that aerobic threshold happens 
decreases, right? So if you're if you're fresh and at, you know you're 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 ready to go, you, if your aerobic threshold maybe let's say 200 watts for argument's sake, you know four, five, six hours into a ride, it's going to be considerably below 200 watts. So if this if this method can uh, can allow folks to keep an eye on that rather than saying, okay, I'm going to ride 190, 185 watts because I'm safe at, like I said, six hours into that ride, 190 watts may well be above that aerobic threshold. So this is a really, um, a really interesting use case for those folks. Yeah. And, and to expand on that just a little bit, if you don't mind, um, I've noticed effects of heat Yes. Where and, and I'm not I'm not talking about, you know, after two hours of dehydration in the heat. I'm talking about simply not putting cooling fan. This happened to me indoors. We we lost power and I lost my cooling fan and the air conditioning. And it kind of got stuffy in the room yep. and my alpha one just plummeted. I, I was doing a ramp that day uh-huh. and it was just shocking to me how 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 severe the decline was. So skin temperature and heat uh, definitely have have implications on the stress levels Absolutely. that your body is undergoing. Absolutely, you're speaking my uh, language other thing- now, Bruce. I'm just going to interject <laughs> because we're we're big heat transfer nerds. I'm actually wearing a. Uh, I've started wearing it all the time. We and we've talked about this on the show uh, quite a bit. The the core body temperature sensor um, for for a, for a, a nerd like yourself, this is something worth looking into. Uh, it's a it's a Swiss company that um, that has a, a thermal electric generator sensor that you wear on your skin. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating to see the effects of cooling, the effects of clothing on, well, on core temperature, but absolutely your heart has to work much harder. You, your body has to do more work, whether or not it's work that's actually, you know, driving your pedals or work that's, uh, that's, you know, basically acting like a coolant system for your body because it's overheating in these atypically warmer conditions. So I, I totally agree that you would be, you would be doing more, more internal work if, if it's hotter. Excellent. Well said. One more thing I just want to throw out there where this could possibly be of use as far as knowing where your your threshold of the alpha one being 0.75. We have some preliminary data that uh, monitoring this over time as your fitness improves or not Hmm. is, is predictive of where your ventilatory threshold is. So it may be uh, of use to monitor your fitness status and uh, assessing if you're reaching your fitness goals. Sure. So that's another uh, you know use case that we we should consider. Absolutely, because uh, you know in in endurance athletics, if your if your lower threshold increases over time over training, that's a very good indicator uh, or and a good predictor of ultimate uh, race performance. Uh, I don't care whether or not you, whether you're a crit racer or an ultra endurance athlete. That's going to be, you know, an increased aerobic threshold is something that we all are, should be striving for in our endurance training. Um, okay, let's uh, let's move on and talk about the equipment required. Now we talked a little bit about uh, we we mentioned Kubios and we talked about um, Marco's HRV logger, which is I think only available on iOS for the time being, but uh, it's 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 far more affordable. I understand. Uh, so let's talk. Uh, if you have anything else to add about the the software packages, please do. But also, what about hardware, uh, specifically the heart rate straps required for this analysis? This is kind of something that's very, very important. Remember way back we were talking about um, the importance of timing to get this this fractal pattern. Um, the, 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 the precision of timing is really important, mm-hmm. much more important than simply knowing what your heart rate is. So we're, we're looking at very fine patterns. It's almost like if you had a smear on your camera lens – uh, you know, you, you would have a blur, blurry picture. And so we need devices that capture the timing very accurately. Um, and we right now, we don't have uh, anything documented as far as validation studies, although I will tell you that hopefully soon we'll have something on the Polar H series. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as far, remember, we used an, an ECG. We used an electrocardiogram. Right. Uh, with with our validation study, so device uh, uh, characteristics are going to be very very important. Having a uh, you know a belt that's broken or a device with a low sample rate, as far as you know the 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 amount of information it's it's passing back, uh, can definitely interfere in this. Um, another thing that's important is artifacts. Okay. So you know you wear one of these belts and and you're running. 
And, and uh, several studies have shown that when you're running at high intensity, you get a lot of missed beats. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, just, just the motion of the strap and, and all you know, the chest muscles. And, and if your artifacts are high, it's going to affect the index. So one of the things we're concerned about in some of these softwares um, uh, is that they may not either tell you what the artifact level is. And, and if they even do, uh, they're still going to give you data when they, sh- you know, perhaps shouldn't even report it. Hmm. You know, the data is so polluted, you know, garbage in, garbage out that, you know, yes, you can report it, but you can't trust it. You can't use it to define an index. So, yes, you need the right hardware. You need the right software. You have to make sure your artifacts are not that high. If you're looking for percentage artifacts, I can tell you that 3% or less, you're, you're definitely safe. 5%, it's definitely getting hazy. So, you know, those are some of the very important things that I just wanted to throw out there. So if you're if you're kind of, you know, a non-medical, uh, you know, recreational user of uh, of this technology and, you know, you don't you know, you're, you're cognizant of, of costs. Um, if you put yourself, let's, let's say you're me, you know, I'm, uh, I'm an enthusiast, but I'm not going to spend you know, probably $400 on a software package and, and pay a yearly fee for it for, for Kubios. Uh, and you know, I'm certainly not going to buy an ECD <laughs> and even if I could find one to stick in my basement beside my trainer, if you were me, <laughs> what sort of equipment would you be, uh, would you be investing in if you, if this is something you want to investigate? Well, I, I think if you had uh, an iPhone or an iPad, Yep. Using Marco's app is is definitely the way to go. Okay, uh, we haven't done any formal validation study. I can tell you informally, it's 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 really close to what I get out of Kubios. Um, if you're using his app, there's something called uh, there are different methods for for artifact correction in his app, different settings. Okay, so you'd want to use the workout mode setting. All right, and and this would be this works for for exercise for fixing many of the artifacts you would see Uh, unfortunately he doesn't say how bad the art you know to what extent your artifacts are you just have to hope they're not so severe Um, but again that would probably be your best bet if you wanted to spend ten dollars or less and you had an iphone sure if you had an android you can Record, uh, you know, whether it be a Polar or a Garmin, and and download your your file into Kubios free version. And yes, you can't do time varying analysis, but you do have artifact correction, and you can get your two minute windows uh, on my blog. I have a bunch of posts on how to use Kubios and how to do this. It's it's not that hard. There's a little bit of a learning curve, mm-hmm. but again, it, it is still industry standard. Um, even in, in, in its free version. Understood. And as far as uh, as far as actually measuring heart rate, I mean, you you didn't say this, but you mentioned it in our email exchange, and I just want to throw it out there. It should be fairly obvious to our listeners, but an optical sensor is not going to give you the kind of accuracy. Uh, because the artifacts in optical sensors, and we've talked about this on the show with folks, um, the artifacts in optical heart rate sensors are really, really high. I get a good heart rate when I'm running with my latest latest generation Garmin optical sensor. Um, I almost never use it, and suffice to say, if you needed the really the precision for some for this kind of analysis, an optical sensor would not be suitable. That sound right? Absolutely. There, there is no no place for an optical sensor <laughs> at, sure. at this at this, at this time. Point. Yeah. And as far as as far as straps, you mentioned Polar. So the Polar H series, they have a, a couple of models. And again, folks, just so just so we're clear, we're not. Um, no, uh, Marco is not sponsoring the show for HRV for training, and neither is Polar. We're just uh, we're um, you know talking about devices that we think are the most suitable for the application. So the Polar H series, there's the H9 and the 10, I think. Yep. Uh, those would be the best bet for strap, heart, uh, chest straps? Uh, yeah, I mean, we we um, have a, a paper, um, an article just that we submitted to sensors. Uh, it's a f- fairly um, uh, good journal for um, heart rate variability and device uh, calibrations and evaluations. And, and part of that study that, that we just submitted, uh, it's not out yet, is looking at the difference between the ECG index mm-hmm. versus a polar H7-derived index okay. used in the same individual at the same time. They were wearing both the ECG and the polar. So you know th- that'll kind of be the first 
uh, published data out there on are they equivalent or not. Got it. Got it. But uh, yeah, uh, it's it because yeah, the polar, the polar strap historically, in my understanding, has been the the one that's that's used mo- most often by labs. Anytime I've gone to my my cardiologist for for any kind of testing, it's always been a polar strap that I've put on. So just that kind of historical, I guess, momentum <laughs> planted in my head the the accuracy of the polar device. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. So. Now that we know what we how we can how we can carry out this analysis, let's talk about some of the uh, you know some of the pitfalls or some of the uh, the shortcomings of this technique. Some of the things that you might be aware of, and some of the things that you guys are working on uh, in you know for future improvement of this methodology. Right. Uh, yeah. The the pitfalls are basically some of the things we said. The, the misbeat artifact, especially above five percent. Um, any type of cardiac arrhythmia. Um, okay. You can have premature beats that are not really artifact. I mean, that's a true beat. It's just a premature beat, and even one of those can throw off the alpha one index the index significantly, really suppress it. Hmm. Um, and that's why I recommended using the workout mode setting um, in in uh, Marco's software, or even the very strong. Um, uh, setting artifact correction setting in Kubios. If you're seeing kind of weird results in, in your data, uh, it could be from those premature beats. Um, some of the other pitfalls, and, and I, I would say one of our concerns um, is that you know th- this may become something that other websites or other platforms decide to use. And, um, for instance, I, I, you know, for my cycling data and I'm not like plugging them or anything, but I use like cyclinganalytics.com or okay. there's Runalyzer and, you know, Strava, you know, it, it wouldn't take, it's not a big step for them to take your, your RR beats and, and, you know, give you a DFA alpha one calculation. It's not sure. a huge amount of work for them. And, and, and what we're concerned about is kind of a, a quick and dirty implementation that they either may not be doing the proper pre-processing, proper artifact correction, and even, again, taking data that is, as, that is rampant with artifact. You know, if they're getting data that has 10% misbeat artifact, uh, that that's worthless data, and and you know again reporting on that is not right. So we're 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 a little bit concerned that people are going to kind of get soured by by the index if they're not getting results because of poor implementation of of some non-validated methods. Under, yeah, and that's always this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. I've talked, and I when you were introducing your your interest, and you mentioned that you'd uh, you'd looked at how uh, Garmin, for example, calculates VO two max. Uh, this is, and I'm a big fan of Garmin. I actually am a, a Garmin dealer myself. Uh, X3 Training, my my coaching company is, and uh, so I I'm a big backer of their of their product. But a lot of their their performance metrics are kind of, you know, are really, they really piss me off, honestly, um, because of, because of that garbage in garbage, garbage out sort of, uh, (laughs) thinking, right. That if you don't get good quality data in, then you can't really make claims that are, that are reliable in any sense of the word. Exactly. And, and, and it almost, they, they, um, turn you off to their platform yeah. by even going there in the first place, they would, would be better off not saying anything. hundred percent. You know, you bring up Garmin and, and one of the things that they, um, derive is your respiratory rate based on heart rate variability. Yes. yes. I, I, I'm very interested in that conversation because it's actually something that is interesting and useful in training, obviously, as we said, you know, understanding your ventilatory thresholds is useful. Um, but uh, I've had this conversation with Andrew in the past, how frustrating it is, how unreliable their, their reporting of, uh, of ventilatory rate is. Yeah, it's, it's way off. And studies have actually looked at, um, you know, accuracy of heart rate variability for predicting respiratory rate. And at best, it's modest, modest. I mean, you almost could, um, I could do better by just saying, well, you know, your heart rate goes up, you you must be breathing faster. Um, (laughs) And I I have a hexaskin shirt, which actually gives me respiratory rate and minute ventilation. And I've done some kind of side-by-side tests with the Garmin and it's not even close. I mean, it, yeah, so, um, again, our concern is that 
uh, right now we have really nice data from clean uh, RR tracings, uh, well done. And again, I, I, I'd love for this to become much more widespread. And I'm very excited about seeing that. I just don't want people to get the wrong idea based on um, you know, kind of non-validated uh, you know, schema. Sure. And also this is, you know, we, we, as we, as we mentioned in our introduction, because this is a fairly new technique, there are going to be, you know, revisions, uh, and clarifications in the methodology and improvement in the equipment and in the methods as well, uh, as we, as we all learn more. And that's kind of how, you know, that's how science works. Uh, so with with as with anything that's uh, you know that's fairly that's fairly new, this is something that's going to probably continue to improve. I hope so. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then you mentioned too that uh, the I don't know I wasn't clear if this was your study or or, or previous studies that were only done in males. So uh, we know that there are obviously differences between that that women aren't small men, as Stacey Sims uh, is known for saying. Uh, so have has this been uh, has this analysis been done in female athletes? No, it has not. Um, and again, we we have kind of a list of things that we're currently working on and that we, we want to work on. And yes, uh, uh, th there's been really little to no study in, in females. Um, and again, we have cycling and running, no data on cross-country skiing or some other sports. Um, sure. What about people with uh, you know heart disease and, and heart failure, other segments of the population, older, much younger, um, we, you know, we're working on this. We have some abstracts submitted on various uh, of, of, you know, issues like this. Uh, also, the other thing we're kind of looking at is the validation of these Python-based scripts. Um, like the heart rate variability logger is using a Python-based script. Um, most of these um, that you'll see from other websites and platforms are also using similar scripts. And, and we certainly need to look at that and validate it. Right, and that's that. You're looking primarily at uh, making sure that they do a good job of uh, artifact detection and correction. Actually, that's uh, I. I was initially concerned about that. Um, I'm more concerned about, and and this gets into some more detail that you 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 guys don't want to hear. But there is actually some fairly elaborate pre-processing that needs to be done to the beat pattern before the alpha one calculation. Okay. And I don't want to get into too much detail about that, but Kubios uses a certain type of pre-processing uh, and the Python method uses a different. So that is actually our more of our concern than the artifact correction right now. Okay. That makes sense. Um, Bruce, this was awesome. This was uh, uh, probably one of the most dense uh, conversations that we've had on the show, and we've had some doozies. Uh, but I think the promise of this uh, of this technology, and especially the fact that it can be, you know, it, this analysis can be done with a, a ten dollar iOS app and you know a decent heart rate strap from Polar. Um, the, and we can actually capture in the field without all, without this, without, you know, med carts and lactate analyzers capture this critical metric. I think that's super exciting. In fact, um, the, the thing that I'm going to do once I get off the, this recording is I'm going to order a polar strap so that I can try this for myself. I think that's super. I, I, I think that's a compliment you gave me. Um, it was a hundred percent a compliment. It was, it was a little bit, a little bit long winded as most of the things that I say are, um, and you know, maybe qualified, although not really. Uh, I, I think I just qualified my qualification. So that's the, uh, that's, that's where we're, we're getting into kind of a meta state of this, uh, of this interview. Um, but Bruce, thank you so much for your time uh, and for your, um, you know, your patience in explaining some of these more or less than less than transparent concepts, at least to someone like me. Thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate it. And Bruce, uh, if folks want to uh, follow your research, read your blog, uh, what's the best place to do that? Are you on social media? I know you've got you mentioned the blog. We'll uh, we'll put a link to it on our show notes as well when we publish this episode. Is there anywhere else yeah. people can pay attention? I'm on Twitter, uh, BJRMD, which is just my initials in MD. Okay. And, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if, if anyone wants to, you know, send me a question or 
Uh, if I don't get too bogged down, um, I, I would even I don't mind you know answering a question about data. Um, okay. it, you know, again, I, if I get flooded by you know too many <laughs> requests, I can't do it. But sure. you know, I don't mind taking a quick look at somebody's numbers um, if if they ha- if they get stuck. Oh, that's a really kind offer. So, and the other thing that as we've been talking about this, you've you've brought up some topics that uh, kind of you know fire my brain up and 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 make me want to ask you to come back on the show to talk about. Uh, specifically like the Garmin metrics. This is something that I've only had very tangential experience with, you know, really just only knowing that they don't represent the truth (laughs) and that I'm frustrated by them. Um, But it it might be a very interesting topic of conversation to have uh, on a follow-up episode. Actually, before the the Alpha One kind of hit the streets and became very popular, my, my most read post was on the accuracy of the Garmin VO2 Max uh, determination and and yeah so yeah I, I i'd be happy to do that someday thank you we should absolutely do it so listeners uh as always thank you very much for spending the time um i suspect you might have some questions about this episode uh i've got uh bruce's contact information or of course you guys all have my own and andrew's if you have any questions please do send them through and either we'll answer them or we'll forward them to bruce uh And uh, as always, our ask is that you rate and review the show. Um, Thank you so much to all of you who have been doing it. We're uh, we're killing it on that front. We're getting really great reviews um, and and a bunch of five-star ratings from you. And for a show that's not downloaded as much as some of the other shows in the endurance sport world, what that really signals to us is that you guys are listening and uh, taking something away from it. So we're, Andrew and I, I'm going to speak for him. Usually I try not to, but I'm going to speak for him here. Andrew and I are grateful for that. So thank you very much for listening and, uh, and contributing. Bye.